1755, Samuel Johnson published the first edition of his famous Dictionary of the English Language. Originally conceived as a work which would fix and stabilise English, the dictionary had been commissioned by a group of London publishers who, while they also published a range of other dictionaries, deliberately set the dictionary, which we now know as Johnson's Dictionary, apart. This dictionary would, they hoped, like the Dictionary of the French Academy, act as a national dictionary, prestigious, authoritative, setting the standards and the boundaries of the language. Perhaps ironically, then, it was controlling French and its encroachment upon English, which was one of the boundaries which Johnson prominently brought into play in his 1755 preface. Our language, he stated, has for over a century been gradually deviating towards a Gallic structure and phraseology, from which it ought to be our endeavour to recall it. And if it wasn't recalled, he warned, rather than speaking English, we might be reduced to babble a dialect of France. French resistance was, in this respect, neatly brought into the linguistic foreground. In some respects, we can see this as a bit of popular anti-French rhetoric. For 18th century writers, France was an object of both desire and unease. It was a popular tourist destination, especially for the elite of London, but France was also a traditional enemy. Real invasions were contemplated, planned and even begun at various points in the 18th century. Images of invasion, occupation and domination in terms of language, as a result, can have a range of complex associations. The sense that French affectation and Frenchifying French Lexis were in danger of overrunning English and threatening its identity was by no means new. To Frenchify, as Johnson notes in his dictionary, was to infect with the manner of France. Utopian writing by English writers in the early 18th century could depict an earthly paradise as a place where corrupting French loanwords and manners did not appear. Likewise, popular drama and novels had long used French loanwords as a ready signifier of excess and affectation, as in Dryden's Marriage à la Mode, or Samuel Foote's The Englishman Returned from Paris, where, if the Englishman has returned, so too has a good bit of French vocabulary. Notions that French loanwords can be part of outward show, rather than being part of genuine communication, which, in fact, too many French loanwords might impede, are therefore common, both inside and outside the dictionary. If we look at the dictionary itself, we can see that Johnson often uses terms such as merely French, or Gallic, or Gallicism, within a range of French-derived entries, and these too can act as a ready signal of verbal affectation of this kind. Words of this kind, Johnson can suggest, are not being used because of real communicative need. The idea of a lexical gap or the sense that a meaning can't otherwise be expressed in English without borrowing a word from somewhere else. This is what we might call the principle of projected gain. Instead, such words can just be used in order to signal something about the speaker or writer, a marker of prestige and status, perhaps, or of affectation and fashion, indicating superior fluency in French and its nuances. A good example is the entry for fraîcheur, where Johnson is forthright in his condemnation. Freshness, coolness, he writes, a word foolishly innovated by Dryden. Fraîcheur sounds and looks French, not English, and the two explanatory English words, freshness and coolness, which Johnson uses in his definition, make clear that the principle of need is not really at work here. Foolishly, also it makes clear Johnson's very disapproving stance, we don't need fresher to be able to talk about coolness or freshness, and English speakers and writers have here proved Johnson right. 
Similar is the entry that Johnson um, writes for a word such as délice. This too, Johnson stresses, is a word merely French. Like fracture, if it can be used in English, as in the example Johnson finds from Spencer, and which he gives in the dictionary, but délice remains marked by its Frenchness, and is arguably also rendered redundant by other words already in English, such as delight, an earlier loan from French, though long since assimilated into English, or indeed pleasure, also from French, and again long assimilated. Real usage in English is remote from délice, just as it is from, say, dernier, the French word for last, another word for which Johnson provides an entry, but because he can find evidence for its use in an English text. But he also notes that it is a, a mere French word, and used only in the following phrase, dernier resort. This is a Gallic signification not adopted among us, Johnson likewise states for comport, in the sense to bear, to endure. For Johnson, then, words and senses like these are not really to be seen as English proper, but, as in the terminology he uses in planning his dictionary in 1746-7, these are instead to be seen as aliens, words which, even if they are occasionally used in English, are nevertheless denied full membership. They exist on the periphery of the native language, only being used with the form and signification which they had in their original homeland. They have, Johnson notes in the plan, made no approaches towards assimilation. They are, he adds, still considered as foreign. In terms of resisting the move towards babbling a dialect of France, these then are perhaps legitimately placed outside the boundary of English proper, which, for Johnson, resides in a very different class of words, what he terms the natives of English, words long in use, fully established with full rights to lexical citizenship. Johnson's attitudes to French and his treatment of French words are often taken as evidence of linguistic xenophobia, of the kind of puristic aims with which he began the dictionary, and by which, as he declared in 1747, his idea of a dictionary was, was one which would settle meaning, meaning and order words, which would draw up boundaries of good and bad, right and wrong, English or not. In reality, however, Johnson's attitudes to loanwords, and to French loanwords, are far more interesting, revealing an interesting change and movement, rather than stasis and restriction, as well as an interest in boundaries on the move. We could look here at the language of naturalisation and the diction of this, as it appears through the dictionary. If at one end of the spectrum is the unassimilated alien such as denier, at the other is a word like sublime, which means the grand and lofty style in Johnson's entry. As Johnson states here, if the sublime can be regarded as a gallicism in one way, it is, as he adds, now naturalised. Usage has made it part of English too. It is no longer alien. Verdant, meaning green, provides another example of loanwords on the move, of the process of naturalisation. This, Johnson says, is a word so lately naturalised that other lexicographers have struggled for evidence. Here then, loanwords are seen as being part of a process of naturalisation, occupying not a simple contrast of natural and alien, but instead taking up a range of positions and what we can see as a spectrum of assimilation, along a process of being received or accepted into general English use. So, along the spectrum of naturalisation are a host of other entries, such as, say, adroitness, for which Johnson notes that, at least in 1755, neither this word nor adroit seem yet completely naturalised, or bagatelle, 
another word he provides an entry for, but, but which is further removed for assimilation for him. This, he says, is a word not yet naturalised. The process is evident in entries for loans from other languages too. We could think about his entry for the word mensal, here from Latin and used by Samuel Richardson. It means belonging to the table, transacted at table, but it is, Johnson states, a word yet scarcely naturalised. Johnson's use of the terms scarcely naturalised or scarce English in a range of entries can in fact then be seen to be marked the beginning or the early stages of possible naturalisation. Scarce, as the dictionary confirms, acts as a measure of quantity, of number. Johnson defines it as not plentiful, as a second sense of scarce indicates, it is rare, not common. For Johnson then, scarce or scarcely indicate frequency, not quality or evaluation. So, if we think about the entry for a word access, for which he notes another French-derived sense, it is sometimes used, he says, after the French, to signify the returns or fits of a distemper. Nevertheless, as he adds, this sense seems yet scarcely received into our language. Access, then, in this sense, can be seen on the borders of assimilation. It is at a point where movement could potentially go either way. It has been used, but for Johnson, it's clearly not really widespread in use at all. It's not really English, but it could potentially be become so. Here, though, Johnson's sense of English and French proves him right. If we use access in a range of senses now, this isn't one of them. So, on a number of occasions, when we look at Johnson's language of assimilation, his language of naturalisation through the dictionary, we can see not a rigid divide of aliens and naturals, the kind of things which we might expect from the image of prescriptive and proscriptive writing, which Johnson is often assumed to command. But instead, we tend to get this interest in change and process, an interest in a language on the move, indicating engaging with borders as they change and vary. Even if it's clear at times that Johnson would perhaps prefer the borders to stay as they are, as in Johnson's comment that finesse, another French loan, is an unnecessary word which is creeping into the language. Here, even if Johnson judges finesse to be unnecessary, the diction he uses takes us back once more to the changing language. Finesse is creeping in, it's assimilating, and as we can see with hindsight, it's making its own moves on the kind of full naturalisation which Johnson sees as having already been accomplished for words such as sublime and verdant. Nevertheless, as Johnson also makes all too plain, it's clear that no one individual can naturalise a loanword or stop its progress. We could look here at Johnson's stringent comments on Dryden's attempts to introduce a new sense of falsify, with the meaning to pierce, to run through. In this case, the meaning in question is influenced by an Italian loan, not French, but the principle stays the same. Dryden defends his use. As he wrote, my friends quarrelled at the word falsified as an innovation in our language. The fact is confessed, he admitted. I remember not to have read it in any English author. But, Dryden adds, suppose it be not there, why am I forbidden to borrow from the Italian a Polish language, the word which is wanting in my native tongue? Johnson, in the dictionary, quotes this and then replies, saying, Dryden, with all this effort, was not able to naturalise the new signification, which I have never seen copied, except once by some obscure nameless writer, and which indeed deserves not to be received. 
Naturalisation, Johnson stresses, takes place not because of a particular poet, but is instead based on in general and widespread use, in the languages commonly received. In this respect, neither a single writer nor a single lexicographer can control the language. Assimilation, naturalisation, testifies to the power of the language community, not the individual arbiter on correctness or use.